I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to Trafe, the only Jewish podcast that aspires and consistently fails to maintain a balance of thoroughness and zaniness. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, we've, we've certainly been neglecting the wackiness for a while. We have. Uh, I think it's an important part of the show and kind of an important part of life sometimes. Yeah, it's true. I think, yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's not a very wacky time in the world right now. You're 100% right. And I think I don't want to box us in here. We're not just thorough and wacky. We're other things as well. Many, many ways you could describe Trafe Podcast. Yes. Uh, so I guess with that said, buckle your seatbelts for uh, what is sure to be a very non-zany ride. Not zany, but hopefully pretty thorough uh yeah here's hoping uh because this is our, our third episode in in our series on the, the jewish labor bund yeah we've put in many many hours into this project so i hope that at least some people will consider it thorough mm -hmm. um i wanted to mention that this is the third episode if you haven't listened to the first two those are episodes 46 and 48 uh check them out first it's probably smart if you don't know what the bund is or you just kind of accidentally happened upon this episode and if people have made it past my my introduction about the different parts, um, what does this episode <laughs> focus on itself? So uh, for this episode, we're focusing on the Bund after World War II, after the Holocaust, the post-war Bund, but also uh, trying to talk about the legacy of the Bund and, and how it's relevant today. Exactly. And we kind of got an all-star cast to meet both of those two needs. So we have Molly Crabapple. Uh, on the one hand, and David Slukey on the other, to kind of help talk about the Bund and what it means after the Second World War. Yeah, and for people who don't know David Slucky, he's a writer and an historian. Uh, he's now written multiple books about the Bund, including his book, uh, The Jewish Labor Bund After 1945. And Molly is an artist and activist based in New York City. She's written multiple books, including a forthcoming one about the Jewish Labor Bund. And without further ado, here's your episode of Trafe for the 25th of Kislev 5781. <laughs> I'm David Slukey, um, or Slutsky, depending on the context, um, either is good. I, you know, I've been a historian of the Bund for over a decade. I wrote a book about the Bund after World War II and the ways in which the Bund tried to kind of reimagine its role in the new post-war world. In 2019, I released my latest book, which was a multi-generational family memoir and called Seeing This at My Funeral, a memoir of fathers and sons. And, you know, one of the, the reasons I write about the Bund specifically is, you know, there is a kind of deep personal investment in telling the story of that movement and trying to understand it because I am from three or four generations, depending which side of my family, of Bundists, I'm sort of, as well as like trying to come to terms with the question intellectual, I'm sort of investigating it in a in a personal sense. So that's um, a kind of ham-fisted version of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show, David. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real thrill to be here. 
we have you on because we wanted to talk about the version of the boon that emerged after the Second World War. But before we talk about the post-war boon, I wanted to ask you about how the Holocaust impacted Bundist and the Bundist organization. The first thing to say is that the Holocaust affected Bundists like everyone else. Bundists were targeted just like everyone else, murdered just like everyone else, put into ghettos. And so the Bund fared similarly to other Jewish organizations, Jewish movements within Europe under Nazi rule. I mean, there's something almost obvious about that, I think. But there are particular ways that we can understand the Holocaust affecting the Bund particularly. One is that the Bund was predominantly a Polish-based organization. So although there were Bundists in other countries and Bund satellite chapters, its center was in Poland, its most dynamic activities were in Poland, and 90% of Polish Jews were murdered, over 3 million. So the Bund's base was murdered. And that sort of left the movement on its knees after the war. You know, this idea of responding to the needs of the Jewish masses and representing the Jewish masses in Poland, that no longer existed. You couldn't talk about the Jewish masses in Poland after World War II. And so it had a kind of existential crisis because its centre had been wiped out. You know, not totally wiped out, and that is not to discount the history of Jews in Poland after World War II, but, you know, the idea of rebuilding a Bund as it was was not really feasible, as they found out. So this is, I guess, the difference between the Bund and some other uh, Jewish political movements, is that the Bund didn't really have a base elsewhere. If it was going to rebuild, it had to start mainly from scratch, whereas other movements were kind of spread out in other ways. So like different Zionist Jewish movements had bases elsewhere that they could, you know, particularly in the issue of in Palestine, um, which already was its major centre. But yeah, when your centre is, is wiped out, it's kind of difficult to then just carry on. Right. And so where did, where did Bundes mostly go after the Holocaust? So the answer is everywhere. I mean, not everywhere, but in lots of places around the world. And they look different in different places. So what they claimed was that there were Bund chapters or branches or organizations in 13 countries in something like 30 cities. And so that ranges from sort of more substantial organizations in Melbourne or Paris or New York or Buenos Aires to kind of small little groups of Bundist families or friends in Montevideo or, you know, small cities throughout the United States and Canada. You know, obviously Montreal was another centre of Bundist life. So like Holocaust survivors do, the Bundists kind of spread all around the world and set up lives wherever they are. And part of that is trying to re-establish something of what they lost through the war. They try and create some sense of home and family. And, you know, for many of these people, they had lost their families. So they didn't really have, they didn't often bring families with them. They had to, like, create that anew wherever they went. And so what was familiar to them, these people often in their 20s who had been reared in interwar Poland, and that is the population I'm talking about specifically, you know, they had this sense of, family that had emerged as part of 
growing up in the Bund in Poland, if that was in the Bundist children's organization, SCIF, if that was in the Yiddish schools, Tisha, which were administered by the Bund and the left Polizion, if that was in the Medem Sanatorium, a kind of convalescent home for children in the countryside. You know, they had these kind of senses of familiarity that they wanted to recreate. And so they do that to a greater or lesser extent in different places. And part of that is recreating the Bund. And many of them, I should say, also were idealistic still, despite what they'd experienced. So they, you know, many people still maintained an ideological commitment to Bundist values and ideas, and particularly the kind that they had grown up around in Poland. The Holocaust did not shake their idealism. And for some people, it kind of strengthened their commitment to the Bund. You know, they didn't have this sense, well, the Holocaust proved that the Bund was wrong. The Holocaust, for many, like, proved actually that they needed to fight harder for Bundist values. Um, so, you know, there's kind of two poles of, like, why they re-emerge in new places. One is kind of familial identity, community, and the sort of need to belong. And one is ideology. They're, they're not ready to give up on what they had known before. And did any, any of these places that the Bundists were scattered to get close to becoming a, a new Bundist center? So, I mean, New York became the kind of global center. And, you know, that made sense because the most important leaders that made it out of Poland, they managed to make it to New York, many of them, and they sort of had established in 1941 a kind of American representation of the Bund. And their role was to basically advocate for Jews in Europe during World War II, to bring information that had been filtering out from uh, Nazi-occupied Europe to the world. And so, like, when the war finishes, there's this kind of natural centre because the Bund leaders, many of the Bund's most dynamic intellectuals, are already settled in New York. That's where, ultimately, the World Coordinating Committee is based. That's where some of its most celebrated intellectuals are based. Um, but other people also go elsewhere. So Melbourne becomes a major centre, and not for the same reason where you know, the major intellectuals go, but just because there's this, like, core group who really managed to recreate a sense of what was lost. And there's a reason why the Melbourne Bund is still really the only one that exists in a continuous way. I mean, there are Bundist groups in Paris and Tel Aviv, but the kind of continuity that the Melbourne Bund has is unique, I think. Okay, so we have Bundists and, and Bundist chapters scattered around the world, and then In 1947, there's this special world meeting that gathers them all together. Uh, I know I'm asking for a big thing here, but but what did the Bundes talk about at this meeting? So there's kind of two aspects to this. The first is like, should the Bund even, should we even continue to maintain a Bund? And what does it mean to maintain a Bund? You know, does that make sense in the new post-war circumstances, in the sort of new world order? And the second part of the debate is, if we do agree that there should be something like the Bund, what does it look like? How do you turn this organisation that was really grounded in a place and reconstitute it to accommodate the new circumstances in which people are living? So that's kind of two sides of the debate. So on that first one, 
I mean, people are saying from as early as 1942, the world is going to be different and the Bund is not going to be the same as it was and we need to shift our attention. So there's this writer, um, Jud Jud Trunk, who's a Bundist intellectual and a, and a historian and a, and a wonderful author. And he says as early as 1942, we need to shift our focus now. And we can't be so strictly focused on Marxism and Marxist ideas. We need to think a bit more broadly about what it means, given the Holocaust, to be part of this thing called the Jewish people. And so he says we need to actually come up with a new way of thinking and refocus our attention. And at the time, like the Bundist intellectuals that are sort of dominating the public sphere, like the journals, are saying, that's fine, but like... We're materialists. We're not interested in these, like, cosmic ideas of peoplehood. What we're interested in is how to make poor Jews' lives better and, yeah, maintain a sense of Jewish culture and Yiddishkeit, but the core thing is to apply a materialist analysis to the situation on the ground. And so by 1947, at the first international conference of the Bund, this is really, like, the core theme that they're debating... And mostly people want to continue to operate in some way. Most people don't want to see the end of the Bund altogether. And so they agree that there needs to be some way of continuing and supporting Bundist life in the new circumstances. Um, one of the tensions is between those who remained in Poland who were trying to rebuild the Bund and who still saw the Bund as a Polish Jewish movement. And they worried that creating a world bund movement would undermine their efforts would kind of like take focus away from their efforts and dilute the meaning of what bundism meant if you decenter it from poland right and and so what what exactly comes out of that meeting so they basically create this kind of loose federation structure where you have a world coordinating committee that oversees a kind of broad ideological program and helps provide support to those local organisations. But they also encourage groups in all the places of the Bundesland to establish their own Bund organisations and to operate with independence, to operate within the local framework, so to respond as appropriate to local issues. So the World Coordinating Committee isn't interested in you know, answering questions about the Australian Labor Party, for example. That's up to the Melbourne branch of the Bund to deal with. But when it comes to, like, questions of is there a Bundist approach to Zionism, Israel, Jewish statehood? Is there a Bundist approach to the Cold War and the Soviet Union? Is there a Bundist approach to, you know, questions of ideology and Marxism? Sure, that is the purview of the World Coordinating Committee. Now, it doesn't always work out. Like when the Vietnam War broke out, the World Coordinating Committee, as you probably would expect, opposed US intervention in Vietnam. Surprisingly, the Bund in Melbourne supported Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War because so many of them were anti-communists who had witnessed Bolshevism or, or Stalinism or whatever. So they wanted to contain the spread of communism. So, you know, there are tensions occasionally that boil over, but for the most part, I think that structure works to help 
at least continue the movement for another generation or two and to like help create a new sense of possibility for what the Bund can be beyond uh, interwar Poland. Right. And, and so, so that's the beginning of the Bund's World Coordinating Committee. Uh, how, how important was the World Coordinating Committee to what the Bund became during this time? Generally, I think what the World Bund became was a kind of forum for Bundes to connect with each other. So I think one of the things about the Bund that kind of gets lost and in some of the early scholarship on the Bund is there's this idea that one of the reasons the Bund ultimately declines, and this is one of the things that I refute in my work, is because they were too ideologically rigid and they weren't willing to adapt to the times. And, you know, I don't think that's true, in fact. I think the Bundists firstly grapple very deeply with the changing world around them. They grapple deeply with what it means to live in a post-Holocaust world, what it means to live in the Cold War world, and what it means to adapt to dozens of new locations where they live. And they're not monolithic. And so if you read the pages of the Bundist journals, um, there's the one that is administered by the World Coordinating Committee, Unser Zeit, or Our Times, you know, they, they have like a lot of debate and diversity within the pages. So, you know, there are resolutions that they pass at each of their world conferences roughly every decade. But, you know, I don't think that the World Bund weighed heavily on Bundists around the world. Like if you're a Bundist in Melbourne or Paris, mainly you were just engaged in your local movement. You might have subscribed to Unser Zeit or you would have seen it in a local Yiddish or Jewish library. But, you know, your investment in being a Bundist was because you sent your kids to the local Bundist summer camp or you participated in local activities. And so that world structure was really a support structure, I think. And it, like, created this sense of, like, you're part of something bigger. So what they would do is they would send emissaries from the coordinating committee to local organisations. And, you know, I think this had some effect in energising people and creating a sense of buzz. Like, some of these people were kind of local celebrities within that world. You know, like, it's hard to imagine Avraham Khan or Emmanuel Scherer being celebrities. If you haven't, like, studied this stuff deeply, you probably don't know those names. But if you're a Bundist in the 1950s and 60s, Maybe you knew them in Warsaw or Vilna, or maybe you read stuff that they wrote, or, you know, maybe you were influenced by their ideas. But, like, these visits, these emissaries, are really significant in, like, making people feel connected. And it, like, created this sense of, like, you're part of something bigger. You know, they talked a lot about Mishpacha, family, you know, being part of a family, and that sense of Mishpacha decade, like kinship was very strong but I don't know that they sort of operated in this like big ideological way where they had like a big bearing on the ways in which those local communities operated right and and so did that structure create any tension between the world coordinating committee and the local chapters you know I think partly there's this divide between grassroots activism and the kind of more, I would say, highbrow intellectual leadership of the Bund that are really thinking deeply through 
these questions of Marxist theory and how it applies to Jews today and you know, and then you have these local organisations which are like, okay, how do we campaign for the local candidate in the city council election? You know, those things can coexist, but I think there's also some tensions between attitudes in terms of what do we prioritise. So I think that exists to an extent. You know, these are people in really different circumstances, and the Coordinating Committee incorporates people from around the world. It had members from Europe and Australia and Latin America... But mainly it was centred in New York and the United States. And so, like, if you live in Paris versus if you live in New York, the kinds of ways you understand decolonization, for example, are going to be different because they affect you really differently. The way you understand the Cold War is going to be different depending on where you live. So, I mean, I think these tensions exist, but I don't think they come too much to bear on why the Bund ultimately goes into freefall by the 80s and 90s as a world movement. Right, and, and I want to talk about that freefall. Um, uh, but first, I, I want to talk a bit more about what you just said about decolonization. Um, you, wrote, you wrote a bit in your book about this failure of Bundes in France um, to oppose French colonial violence in Algeria. And it, it made me wonder whether the Bund were ever really able to, to grapple with the realities of, of French colonialism. I mean, what was so tough about the situation in France for the Bundes is, you know, in 1956, when the government escalates the war in Algeria, it's a socialist government, and the Bundes were aligned with the Socialist Party in France. And so they have this... It's almost an existential crisis. You know, can they consider themselves relevant if they separate themselves from the sort of local socialist party you know some people argued at the time one activist in particular who ultimately left paris in the aftermath of it argued that they failed to fulfill their obligations to oppose colonial violence at the same time like the world bund coordinating committees criticizing the actions of france in algeria and they're critical in the suez crisis in 56 and there's all these sort of things going on where it's kind of hard for French Bundes to navigate their feelings of obligation to ideology or ideas with their kind of civic, what they see as their civic duties as French socialists. And I don't think that they come out of it very well. And it, in some ways it like creates rifts within the French Bund. You know, France is also interesting because the French Jewish community is changing so rapidly as a result of decolonization. So there's this major influx of Algerian, Tunisian and Moroccan Jews into France that means that the sort of natural base of the Bund, that is Yiddish-speaking East European Jews, are less and less representative of what French Jews are than they had been in the past. And so that's like a really interesting period in the French Bund and it all comes to a head over the Algerian war, I think. You've also written about uh, a cultural shift that took place amongst Bundists on the issue of colonialism in Palestine during this period. Do you see this as a similar dynamic? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, as a sort of global movement, I mean, it wasn't the same everywhere, I should say that. They didn't approach it the same. But in 1955, at the Third World Conference, 
So this is seven years after the establishment of Israel and seven years since the Second World Conference. So they had a period to kind of mull this over. They conclude, for the first time, the Bundists conclude that they are part of a world people, and they use the term world people. Previously, they had had these, what I would say are kind of racist attitudes towards Jews in the Middle East and North Africa, sort of typical European attitudes, a sort of an Orientalist view of Jews in those places. But in 1955, because of the changing world and changing circumstances, they sort of recognise that they are part of a world people. And part of that conversation is also Israel, they come to recognise, is an important Jewish centre, is not the singular Jewish centre, and they have to come to terms with it, that it's a reality. In 1948 at their World Conference, you know, things were so fresh that it wasn't the same kind of reality. But by 1955, they're kind of coming to terms with that reality. So, like, early on, they were calling for, like, a binational democratic state. And they sort of continued that idea that, okay, Israel exists, but maybe it ought not be Zionist. And, again, these terms are kind of porous. Like, what it means to say Zionist in 1955 is different to 48, is different to 2020. Um, But what they meant was, like, it should be open to all the citizens that live there, that it should not consider itself a representative or a spokesperson of the Jewish world, and that it shouldn't privilege Hebrew as the national Jewish language, and that was very important to them. So they, they really didn't, I don't think, view it through a colonial lens. They don't see it through the terms of Israel as a settler colony in the way that they would look at Algeria. They're not using that sort of theoretical framework to understand what's going on in Israel. They're sort of thinking about this dynamic situation in which Israel is increasingly a major Jewish centre, both in terms of culturally and politically and in terms of just sheer numbers of Jews that live there. So Bundes communities in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, especially by the end of the century, are extremely supportive of Israel and incorporated as part of their Jewishness and Jewish identity. You know, like, (laughs) real-life Bundists in the 1980s and 90s were not anti-Zionist in the ways that people in 2020 imagine what anti-Zionism is. Huh. I mean, mean, do you think the Bund then was just generally unable to, to grapple effectively with colonialism? I mean, possibly, because I think they did have this, like I said before, these kind of typical, in some ways, European attitudes towards the colonised world. I cite things in my book where they talk, in this debate about whether or not they're part of a world people, where they say, like, who do you really identify with? Do you identify with Pushkin and Mitskevich and Dostoevsky, or do you identify with some tribe of Abyssinian Jews? Right? There's, like, clearly this attitude that they have towards the colonised world that just reflects the attitudes around them. That is not to let them off the hook and say, well, it was just its era. You know, I think broadly speaking, Bundism, if we're going to like talk about it bird's eye, supported decolonization in the 1950s and 60s. But I think France is this example of where, you know, the kind of ideological imperative comes up against the desire to be relevant. Partly there is this sort of background of 
like a, maybe an ambivalence to colonialism, although that would be an interesting project to, for someone to go back, you know, to the first half of the Bund's life and like look at what they wrote about colonization. Um, I haven't done it and I don't think it's work that's been done in any depth. Um, but certainly after the war, I think broadly speaking, they supported decolonization. It just wasn't maybe a priority in terms of their thinking. They were much more concerned about what was happening in Poland and Eastern Europe. They were much more concerned with the decline of the left in the United States and McCarthyism. They were concerned about Peronism in Argentina. Like, colonialism, they had this, like, big-picture view of, but it wasn't, like, a day-to-day thing that occupied them, except where it affected them directly, like in France. So... I wanted to get back to that, that free fall you were talking about earlier that, that the Bund really experienced during the 80s and 90s. Could you explain some of the factors that led to that decline? Sure. I mean, I think it's just like bigger historical processes that they can't fight. The decline of Yiddish as a vernacular is a major factor. You know, that, and each movement, particularly the ones with youth movements, grapple with this. What is the role of Yiddish for children who don't speak Yiddish as much anymore or for whom Yiddish might not be their first language but something they learn in Sunday school. What is the role of Yiddish when it's kind of a symbolic language rather than a daily spoken vernacular? So that becomes an issue for the Bund. And the question of how do you stay relevant as a kind of grassroots working class movement when your constituency is no longer working class becomes something that the Bund in many places just can't adapt to. So the the very first public talk I gave on this as a grad student in 2007 in Germany was called, and this is when I was a fan of alliteration, was called Marxist Millionaires in Melbourne. So I've been thinking about this a long time, about how, you know, what do you do when you're a socialist who makes a lot of money because you own schmutter factories? You know, there's some kind of cognitive dissonance, I think, that takes hold. You know, the places where Bundists survive the most, like Melbourne, like Paris is not because they stay Marxist, it's because they kind of shift their attention to Yiddish language and culture, and they kind of reframe, I think, ideology in more social justice terms rather than the kind of Marxian terms that the leaders of the World Coordinating Committee... You know, the leaders of the World Coordinating Committee are still writing articles about Engels and Marx and LaSalle in their journals at a time when, like, their members were not part of the working-class Jewish masses anymore. So I think, like, those are two big things. And also, like, the decline of the left in certain places, you know? Like, if there's no meaningful socialist movement in the major centre of Jewish life in New York, what hope does the Bund have? At one point, the Bund was bigger than the Socialist Party in America, (laughs) And there were discussions about, like, the Bund absorbing the Socialist Party. It makes it difficult when you're trying to fill this niche and the niche no longer exists in the way that it did before. And I don't think it was because, as other historians have argued, they were ideologically purist. I think the opposite, actually. They weren't ideologically purist. And that's the thing that allowed them to progress longer than 
they might otherwise have progressed because they were willing to adapt. You know, basically, to put it bluntly, they were just pushing shit up a hill in many places. And they got tired. And their kids didn't want to continue pushing that shit up the hill. And so, like, in lots of places, there just wasn't that generational renewal. You know, in Melbourne, the Bund today is run by what I would call second-generation and now third-generation Bundists, people whose parents and grandparents founded the Melbourne Bund 70 years ago in 1950. And now it's like the children and grandchildren of those people who who run the organisation, and that's like a story of success where they could pass on that baton. But, like, they all still live around the corner from their parents. (laughs) If you're in America and you go and, like, take a residency as a doctor in, I don't know, Cincinnati, and your parents are in the Bronx, then what sort of Bund movement are you part of? Like, I think there's just, like, these cultural historical factors that make it really hard to, to, like, establish continuity. And, you know, I mean, to some extent, I imagine you're also talking from experience, you know, not, not just as an historian, but as someone who was raised by Bundists. Um, you know, what, what did it mean for you to grow up in that context? So, you know, I grew up in a Bundist family. That is my, um, I thought everyone kind of knew who Topcha Davidovich was. <laughs> and of course they didn't. And I was probably an adult before I realized how weird that was to like grow up in a Yiddish socialist summer camp and youth movement in Melbourne, Australia. I learned Yiddish at school. My grandparents spoke Yiddish to me, you know, when I saw them several times a week. In some ways, it's something I'm kind of passionate about and in some ways I'm ambivalent about. You know, passionate about because I do see the project of the Bund as having contemporary relevance. And I think like any anyone, we're all looking for a usable past. Right? This is this term historians use, a usable past. That is like a some historical precedent that we can learn from, that we can cling on to, that we can adapt, that makes us feel like we're part of something that stretches back deeper in time than today. And, you know, I'm lucky. Like, I have this directly. But many people don't have, or at least they don't feel like they have it, and they haven't been told they have it. You know, I was told a lot about being part of that link, being part of that, in Yiddish you call it a golden akate, the golden chain. But what does it mean to be a Bundist in a world in which the kind of circumstances that the Bund developed thankfully don't exist for me? That doesn't mean they don't exist for anyone, right? That just means I don't and the people around me don't live in the same kind of poverty among the same kind of anti-Semitism that my grandparents lived with in their lives. And and this is, I think, where this question gets real for me. What is the role of Yiddish and socialism and Bundism for my son, for whom this is going to be even more diluted? Like, I still grew up in a world where people spoke Yiddish to each other every day. But he's not growing up in that world, at least not the people around us. That's kind of where my ambivalence lies, is I don't know what that looks like in the future. So I try and, like, live according to those values as best I can and teach my son and let them kind of infuse the work I do, both as a writer and and as a university lecturer or professor in the US. 
Right, but you know, I, I'm also curious, you know, coming from this background, how you think about the legacy of the Bund today, um, and and also like what you make of this renewed interest in the Bund right now. I have no like illusions that, um, <laughs> and I don't think we ought to see like a big revival of the Bund as it was in Poland in the 1930s. But I do think there's things that are relevant. Like I think the Bund is a sort of for. Bundist ideas are a forerunner of what we talk about as multiculturalism today and kind of cultural diversity. Like, that is built in into Bundist ideas in the 1920s and 30s and in their cultural praxis. Like, that stuff is part of what they did and the ways in which they imagined, like, multi-layered identities, the way you can be thickly Jewish and thickly whatever else you are at the same time. I think those provide great models for us. You know, I've recently moved back to Melbourne from South Carolina where, needless to say, there was no Bund movement except in my house. But, you know, I'm sort of glad to be back in a community in which, like, these ideas still exist and still permeate daily life. You know, I'm empathetic to people who are dipping back into the past and looking to the Bund as a usable past. But I also have this kind of in a way ambivalence to it because I'm sort of relating to that history in a, in a different way being third generation Bundist or whatever like I never used that term before but I'm glad people talk about the Bund still and I'm glad that like on Twitter I occasionally see these threads and debates about the significance of the Bund and I usually stay silent and just watch them because I'm kind of interested in it sociologically <laughs> But yeah, the, I think it, it actually is kind of a complicated legacy because one of the things about the Bund is that you can map whatever you want onto their past because they were a diverse, more diverse movement than people give them credit for. They were more of a broad church. They had more political, ideological, cultural debate than the kind of caricatures might suggest. And so you can pick different points in the Bund's history and say, yes, this is the Bund that I identify with. This kind of anti-Zionism is what I identify with. This kind of Yiddishkeit is what I identify with and what I learn from. And I think one of the challenges like for someone like me as a historian is to say, yes, and like that is a part of the Bund or an interpretation of the Bund and why are you invested in that in that way and what is that telling us about the world in which we live in today rather than the world of the 1920s or 1930s. So I have this personal investment, but I also have this moral and even professional obligation, I think, to take a step back and ask questions about this legacy and not just kind of roll with it. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about The Boond. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun to talk about.
Hey, my name is Molly Crabapple. I'm an artist and a writer living in New York City. I've written two books before, one a memoir and one a book about the Syrian war with the impossibly brave journalist Marwan Hisham. And right now I am working on a book about the Jewish labor boond and my great-grandfather. Well, Molly, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's really great to be talking with you. Oh, man, my absolute pleasure. So David and I really appreciated the essay that you wrote about the boon for the New York Review of Books. I think it was uh, two years ago now. And I know that it came out of years of research and you've continued to research the boon. To, to kind of start things off, how do you think your relationship to the boon has changed during all of this research? Well, unlike... I'm sure everyone else that you've had on to talk about the Bund, I'm not an academic. I'm not a specialist in Eastern European history. As I studied the Bund more, I did learn to read Yiddish because you have to. But I came to the Bund looking for the story of my great-grandfather and looking for the story of what it was like to be a Jewish broke-ass teenager who joins a revolutionary movement and finds himself sort of spun up in history. Uh, my great-grandfather was a painter. He was someone who was almost like a, a father to my mom. He taught her how to paint, and thus by proxy taught me how to paint. I grew up spending a lot of time in my great-aunt's house, surrounded by the thousands and thousands and thousands of portraits that he had done of himself, his carvings, his uh, self-published writing. He painted hundreds and hundreds of watercolor paintings about daily life in his hometown, Volkovsk, which is now in Belarus. And... He had one watercolor that fascinated me. It's this young woman, and she has like a Gibson girl hairdo, and she's wearing a purple dress with a bustle and a corset. And she is walking down the street at night, throwing a rock through a window. And a guy, maybe her boyfriend, is standing next to her, and he has a bag, and he's holding more rocks for her to throw so that she doesn't have to get tired hauling her rocks along herself. And this watercolor was titled... Itka the Boondist, Breaking Windows. I remember I, I looked at it when I was 19, and it was so different from anything that I thought a young Jewish woman in the shtetl would be doing that I was like, what is this? What is the context of this? And what the hell is a Boondist? And that was how I got sent down this rabbit hole of studying the revolutionary movement that my great-grandfather was part of. And of course, when you study any you know real revolutionary movement or when you participate in any real activist movement, you find out that it is impossibly more fraught, compromised, complicated, beautiful, and terrible than you ever possibly could have imagined, um, that it's never one thing, right? And I suppose that as I studied the Bund and all of its many incarnations from underground Russian-speaking anti-Tsarist movement to something that had participated in the Russian Revolution to what it what it later was, which was a combination like trade union, political party, and cultural and paramilitary group in Poland to, you know, what it became in America. I suppose that, yeah, I guess my my relation my relationship to it did change and I started to see it as a far more many colored and, and varied thing. Right. And, you know, you know, for us, after doing probably a lot less research uh, for this series and, and having all these conversations, you know, we've been noticing a lot of parallels between the Boone's approach and more contemporary revolutionary groups like the Black Panther Party or, or the Young Lords. Are, are these parallels that you were also noticing uh, during your reading? 
Well, I'm half Puerto Rican. Uh, my father, Pedro Caban, was one of the uh, scholars who helped found Puerto Rican studies as a discipline. And when Puerto Rican studies was founded, it was a way of saying, like, we Puerto Ricans, we have history, we have culture, we are our own people, and we're something valuable and worth studying. And, you know, Puerto Rican studies it was not just launched with conferences, right? It was also launched with the occupation of university buildings. So it was you know, something that came out of the self-affirmation of some pretty oppressed people who were taking on power. And my father, of course, knew people who were in the Young Lords, though he was not himself in the Young Lords. And, and he always told me that the Young Lords influenced him you know, to study Puerto Rico as opposed to you know, anything else you could have studied as a young political economist. And when I read about the Young Lords, it reminds me so much of the Bund as it was in interwar Poland. When I would look at what the Young Lords was doing in Chicago and in New York, and when I would look at what the Bund was doing in Poland, I saw so many pretty direct parallels. You know, the Young Lords in Chicago, it came out of this moment when a lot of Puerto Rican and Mexican families uh, were being displaced by Mayor Daley from Lincoln Park so that he could move in white suburban families who could pay more property taxes. And some of the first actions uh, by people like Chichi Jimenez, who was the Young Lord's founder, were actions to fight against displacement and against eviction. And this reminds me of when I, w- I was talking to this guy, he must be in his 90s, named Zenon Newmark, who ran guns for the Bund in Warsaw after the ghetto had fallen. And I asked him what he had known about the Bund before the war. And he tells me, the Bund were who you would call when a Jewish worker's family was being kicked out by the landlord because the Bund would send some of their guys from the militia to surround the building and put the furniture right back into the apartment and eventually, you know, quote unquote, persuade the landlord not to kick these people out. And another site that I saw tons of overlap was um, between Puerto Rican studies itself and what YIVO did in its founding days. These were both cultural disciplines that were launched by working class activist scholars who came from minority groups that were constantly told that they were stupid and inferior and defective and inadequate, and that the very best thing they could do was kind of assimilate into the majority culture, change their names, and forget where they came from. And both YIVO and Puerto Rican Studies were founded to say, fuck that by these working people from minority backgrounds to preserve their own damn histories with rigor and with dignity, even at a time when the academy did not want to let them do that. Uh, The other pretty easy parallel is the emphasis on programs that the state wasn't providing. Both the Bund and the Young Lords did daycare programs, for instance. Um, They were both very devoted to this this idea of um, communities organizing for themselves, even if the majority society had completely failed them. Uh, they also both liked to dress up in um, semi-military uniforms um, with jaunty jackets and maybe some headgear and to like march around holding banners. I feel like that's an important part of you know, leftist youth culture in its early stages. And they also both are groups who are at least as relevant as um, symbols as they were political actors in the world. Like the Young Lords, in addition to what they actually did in the world, which was incredibly impressive, 
I mean, these people are also like icons who, you know, even like a photo of them will stir feelings in a Puerto Rican who might not know like the exact specifics of what they did in, in Humboldt Park or how they took over like the United Spanish Methodist Church in East Harlem. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's become clear while researching for this podcast series is that the Boone's value as a symbol is is pretty significant. Um do you think that when people do the remembering of the boon today, that they're mostly engaging with this like romanticized symbol or, or, or fantasy of the boon? I want to start off just sort of spelling out what I think the fantasy of the boon is. This is my guess. Maybe people have other fantasies about the boon, but the fantasy about the boon that I see is a muscly Jewish guy in a newsboy cap who is saying, fuck the Zionists with one middle finger while the other hand punches a Nazi. This is actually a good symbol. I think I'm going to probably diverge from most academics here in saying that I think that there's actually a great value to um, simplified and aesthetic symbols in politics. Um, There are all sorts of people in the world who function primarily as icons, even if the people who are looking at them don't agree with their actual politics. I don't think that you have to um, agree or even know about every single um, complexity and ideological turn of a 70-year-old political movement in order to um, make a really neat aesthetic symbol that you can bring to your life today. That being said, uh, yes, there was more to the Bund than a sexy Jewish guy saying, fuck the Zionists and punching a Nazi. Shockingly, right? Yeah. I I mean, it's interesting, though, because, you know, I also think about who is doing the remembering and who is really engaging with that symbol. And today, at least, you know, the Jewish left tends to be made up of people with generally liberal politics. And the tension between those politics and the revolutionary nature of this symbol of the Bund is pretty stark. Like, is that a tension that you've noticed? Oh, certainly. And it also is something that struck me about Bundists who came to America before the Holocaust. An example that I like to look at is Baruch Charney Vladek. He was a major Bundist orator who um, had a scar on his face because he had been sli- he had been fucked up by a Cossack yeah, who had multiple prison terms. He lived under false papers. Vladek wasn't even his real name. Vladek was his you know nom de guerre, right? And he flees to America after the failure of the 1905 revolution. And what does he become in America? He remains a committed socialist. But eventually he becomes a member of um, LaGuardia's housing administration. And um, in New York, um, the Vladic houses, which are, I think, extremely nice public housing, I've, I've canvassed there, are named after him. And they were done in his honor because of his commitment to like creating you know, nice housing for like poor sweatshop workers, like where he came from. And um, there are a few reasons for this. But I think one of the biggest reasons is that while, of course, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in America... America was not created specifically to fuck with Jewish people. America was built on murdering indigenous people and enslaving black people. So the constraints and the violent racism that Jews faced in America has never been parallel to what indigenous or black people faced here. However, if you were a Jew in Russia, that was not the case. (laughs) Jews in Eastern Europe faced murderous violence all the time. Jews occupied a very different space in Russia and Poland. And so um, what they needed to do to live with dignity and what they needed to do to um, protect their lives and themselves was very different than what they needed to do in America. And I I mean, I think that that's one of the primary reasons that a lot of Jews have become like nice liberals. It's that you actually like can live a pretty decent life as a Jew in America 
whereas I think that that option was not available for young black people that came out of the milieu of the Panthers. And so, you know, their answers were much more revolutionary in America. That's not to say that if those same young black people were able to move to a country where they did not experience racism, they wouldn't become nice liberals there too, right? When groups are able to organize openly, they often kind of mellow because you can organize, you know, legal trade unions. You can you can get bent out of shape about like where you're going to rent an office and what's going to be on your banner. Whereas um, if your group is strictly illegal, like it was in the milieu that the Boons came out of, uh, you lived at every moment uh, with arrest and even execution hanging over your head. I think it it leads to a very different way of thinking. Right. Um, and, and I think there's a thing that happens too, where, you know, the post-war boond, it politically drifts in directions that often then clashes with the revolutionary symbol that we're talking about. You know, we could look at this in, in a lot of different areas. Uh, but I was wondering if you think specifically the boons post-war positions on Palestine eventually became at odds with the anti-Zionist symbol of the boon that's so often invoked today. Well, I mean, I think it's very, it was very different, right? Because it's one thing if you're saying, should hundreds of thousands of Jews move to Palestine, ethnically cleanse it, and create a Jewish state? That's one question, right? And the Bund was like, no, absolutely not. But another question is, is there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in um, the land that was Palestine, and some of them are our family, and they had to go there because the only alternative was rotting in a DP camp. What should we do now? And um, they instead lobbied for the right of return for Palestinian refugees and for legal equality between um, Palestinians and um, Jews. And if you read about the demands that the World Organizing Committee of the Boon made in 1948, they're not actually essentially dissimilar from the demands of BDS. They um, demanded the immediate right of return of Palestinian refugees that had been driven out during the Nakba. And they fiercely denounced the Zionist militias for driving Palestinians out. They demanded a secular, non-clerical state in Israel and full equality between Jews and Palestinians. Um, After 1967, they called for an immediate withdrawal from the land that Israel had occupied then. These positions are, are not dissimilar from I think like the correct positions now, they were just simply positions that no one wanted to listen to. And the Bund was a small, materially impoverished organization in Israel. It was, it had, didn't have enough money at one point to even, you know, get on the ballot. Yeah. Um, so then when you think about the legacy of the Bund, what complicates it the most for you? Uh, the deeper question that I, I puzzle with a lot with myself with the Bund, and this is something I don't have answers with is I think the great tragedy of the Bund is the Bund was an organization that truly, truly believed in the decency and the goodness and the fighting potential of the non-Jewish working classes. I um, remember an essay by Henrik Ehrlich where he, I think, well, he was writing it after the Nazis came to power, but I forget if he was writing it, you know, in Poland before the invasion. But he's like telling Jews, like, don't think you're the only victims of this. What about the German working classes are being crushed under the boot of Hitler? And I'm just reading this and I'm like, man, like, you thought too good of the German working classes, Henrik Ehrlich. Like, I don't think they had the solidarity by and large you thought they did. I mean, to me, it's not a failing of the Bund, but it's a problem with anyone from a persecuted minority group who is trying to take part in a universal struggle. Like, what do you do when the majority is just too fucking racist and leaves you to die? 
it's something that I struggle with because the Bund, you know, even though they were people who were very, very devoted to the Jewish working classes and they were very, very devoted to Yiddish, they were also people who were devoted to the global struggle of workers. Um, Bundists fought in Spain, right? Victor Alter set up an illegal radio station to like broadcast, you know, news into Germany so German workers um, could listen to it. Former Bundists like Vladik, um, when they formed the Jewish Labor Committee, which was devoted to helping get people out of Nazi Germany, the first people they were getting out of Nazi Germany were not Jews. The first people they were getting out of Nazi Germany were German Aryan trade union organizers who were being persecuted by Hitler. They spent tons of time, If you, I mean, I went through their archives, not just rescuing Jews from the war, though they saved a lot of Jews, but also rescuing Spanish anti-fascists. and. Italian anti-fascists who were in danger. This was a group with profoundly um, universal values, but they um, ultimately came up against the fact that, you know, as a minority party, they um, could not save themselves in Poland. No minority group could save itself from the Nazis. Yeah. Um, but then what part of that echoes the most into today for you? For me, what the reason that I continue to be so inspired by the Bund and the reason I'm devoting so many years to writing about them is their um, vision of political activism is one that is incredibly relevant today. It's basically that you can be an internationalist, you can fight for freedom and for dignity and for socialism all over the world without subsuming yourself, without forgetting where you came from, without forgetting your community and abandoning it. Um, without changing your name or changing your language, that we can all um, be ourselves while also fighting for everyone. I mean, to me, that's something um, that's incredibly, incredibly resonant. And I think it's something that the left is trying to work with now. I mean, just the fact that there would be like, you know, a Latino caucus in the DSA, right? Or like an Afro-socialist caucus. I mean, that's something that is not dissimilar to what the Bund was trying to do at its founding, right? Which is that we can be part of a larger socialist group that's for everyone, but without forgetting ourselves and our own interests. And when the Bund was trying to do that at its formation, that was something that was incredibly looked down on. Um, Plekhanov called them Zionists with seasickness. And um, the idea that you would focus on Jewish issues was seen as stupid and ghettoizing and dividing the working class and, you know, something really pretty much beneath contempt. Whereas now I think that most people would acknowledge that you can both fight for socialism in the general sense, but also fight for your own community. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I don't generally agree with that characterization of the boon, but I, I do have to say that Zionist with seasickness is a pretty terrific insult. It's a good burn. I mean, they, they were all such assholes. Like you should, it's, it's really pretty amazing. Um, if you read these things, um, there's this point where Trotsky says to Mark Lieber, the Bundist, he says, well, I'm a Jew and I don't consider you my representative. And Mark Lieber says, well, that's because we're the representative of Jews who work <laughs> because Trotsky, you know, came from a, a wealthy family. Right. Uh, and, you know, something something that I've noticed is that so many of these stories about the Bund or, you know, at least the ones that we're hearing about, they generally tend to revolve around men. Uh, which is a bit surprising to me, just given how much we've heard about how central women were to the Bund. Um, and so it's just making me think about how Bundist women are remembered. Yeah, this is an issue that's very tied in with Yiddish. Almost everyone who um, speaks Yiddish now as a mother tongue comes from, you know, the Haredi or Hasidic communities. And 
in general, those communities are, are not very interested in the Bund because the Bund were militant atheists, right? So that leaves like a very small amount of people in this world that speak Yiddish and would have any interest in reading about the Bund. Almost all the writing that the Boon produced about itself is in Yiddish. All of the biographical dictionaries, the like memorial album, you know, they put out at the Russian Revolution, their like five-volume history set, their newspapers. They did some stuff in Russian and Polish. And when they came to America, they did some stuff in English and they did some stuff in French and, and even Spanish when they were in Argentina. But in general, um, this was a Yiddish-speaking org. And that means that you have these books that have the most fabulous stories of women in them. Stories of women who led self-defense brigades on the streets of Odessa to battle Cossacks. Stories of women who ran guns. Stories of women who snuck onto the decks of the battleship Potemkin during the 1905 revolution and like agitated the soldiers. Stories of more brave, exciting, sometimes martyred, um, brilliant, daring, rebellious feminist women than you can possibly count. And all those stories by and large, with a few exceptions, are in Yiddish, and they're locked up in out-of-print Yiddish books that you can pretty much only get from like the Yiddish Book Center. And this leaves someone who, who has a casual interest, who isn't going to spend years learning Yiddish, it leaves them with the stuff that's written in living languages. There's one book on the women of the Bund that's written in German, there is one book that's in English by a woman who was a Bundist courier in the Warsaw Ghetto, and another book that was written by Sofia Dubnova, who was the wife of the Bund's leader in Poland that was put out by her family, but it's long out of print. But other than that, if you're an English speaker, pretty much your only encounter with Bundist women is going to be through the works of feminists like Irina Klepfitsch, who wrote um, a beautiful essay about Yiddish-speaking women, Bundist women amongst them. However, if you were just like reading like the books about the leaders, all of those books that are in English are about male leaders and women factor into them incredibly, incredibly peripherally, if at all. And so one of the reasons that I determined that I was going to learn to be able to speak Yiddish is I was just so frustrated with the idea that I would write something about the Bund and I would essentially, because of my linguistic inability, have left out the stories of all these amazing women, Right. And so are there are there any stories of Bundist women that you've come across in your research that, that come to mind? Oh, God, yeah. I, I mean, I just finished reading uh, the memoirs of Patty Kremer, who's the wife of the Boone's founder, Arkady, and also reading all the stuff about her and like her biographical dictionary. And one of the things I loved about it was just all of the nitty gritty conspiracy of revolutionary life. Like Patty was a dentist and she had become a dentist because being a dentist was one of the few jobs that let you get a residency permit to live in St. Petersburg if you were Jewish. And she had like this little dental shop and revolutionaries from out of town would come in and she'd like put them in the dental chair and then she'd like blindfold them. And then all the other people would come out of the back room and they'd have a meeting while this guy is blindfolded. Um, oh, she has this one hilarious story about, this is before her and Arkady were Bundists. This is just when they're like hipster students in St. Petersburg. And they have like a discussion circle and they decide that they're going to discuss the problem of sex workers. 
was a bad road when, you know, young intellectuals go on this road. And they decide that they're going to educate sex workers about socialism. And so Arkady goes out into the street at night and he's like going to approach, you know, a sex worker and like bring her back so that the girls can talk to this woman about socialism. But he's too socially awkward and fails to approach anyone. And his friend does eventually like bring back two girls who Patty mentions, listen to their lectures with disgust and then ask them for some money to survive and say they're going to bring back more of their friends to listen to further socialist lectures. But then the girls just take all their money and disappear. So that, that was a promising, a promising start to proto-Bundist activism was happening there. <laughs> Yeah, um, there's a whole lot to unpack here, but I think we're going to kind of move on to the bigger reflections on the Boone portion of this uh, podcast. Um, with all of the the research and conversations that you've had, what do you think the major lessons are that you've taken from reading all these stories and, and, and these histories? I think one of the first lessons is how they provided a complete culture for people in Poland. And it was a culture that people wanted to take part in. Like it wasn't just that you attended lectures on Marxism. You also like went to really cool dances where there were like really hot liberated girls that were there. It wasn't just that you marched at demonstrations. There were also choirs and camping trips and you know, all sorts of like fun things to do. So for me, that that's one of the first things that a political movement needs to like create a complete world that people can dip into that's natural and organic and is not pretentious and that's accessible and that meets people where they are and with what they're interested in. I mean, like they had one of the most popular sports clubs in Poland. They were really into like gymnastics and, you know, boxing and bike riding and stuff. Um, another lesson is that I do definitely believe that people should organize within their communities, but that that will ultimately be futile unless you have really strong links with what, for lack of a better word, I would call like universal groups, um, groups that aren't confined to any one community in particular. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, the Bund was so instrumental in the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt was that they had um, serious links with Polish comrades on the outside, you know, people who could get them weapons and smuggle out their newspapers. So you can't be entirely insular and be successful, but you also shouldn't actually like just forget and abandon the community that you come from. A third lesson, I would say that this was a lesson for, for people in the majority culture, which is that if you don't want people to join violent separatist movements, which is what I consider Zionism to be, you actually have to um, act in solidarity with them and, and not just abandon them. And I think that um, there's been historically a great deal of um, abandonment by people from privileged groups. And I think that solidarity is um, the best way to inoculate all of us against violent and supremacist movements. And, you know, just just to sort of wrap up this question about uh, the symbol of the Bund versus, you know, the history of the Bund. Uh, what do you see as the main relevance of the Boone's different legacies today? I guess one of the things that I would say is very often when I see people now discussing the Boone, they're very uh, literalist about it. They're either we should exactly resurrect the Boone 100% as it was then with newsboy caps and Yiddish, or else it's the Boone's entirely irrelevant, and why would we even look at that? The material conditions are totally different, and you're not getting the complexities of the things that happened in Chernov in 1908 and blah, blah, blah. 
And perhaps because I'm an artist, I um, take a slightly different view on it, which is that movements, they can rest for a while and then be taken up by new people and their meanings can be transformed and they can inspire people in new struggles. And you never know exactly what those struggles or what those uses will be. And my book, I start my book off with a quote, not by any particular Bundist, but by um, Mahmoud Darwish in his poem, Eleven Stars Over Andalusia. And I'm paraphrasing here because I'm forgetting the exact lines, but my paraphrase is, we will search for our history in the margins of your history. And for me, that's what studying the Bund is like. It's like studying this movement that was at one point incredibly powerful, that was crushed by two of the most violent forces in history, right? Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany, and then was um, deliberately erased by Zionism. And yet it still exists and it still haunts the present and it's still laced everywhere. And I think that those ghosts have all sorts of value that's far beyond far beyond the literal and we don't know what struggles they will inspire. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end on, Molly. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us about the Bund and your reflections on its legacy. Oh man, it was my absolute pleasure. Um, there's nothing that I enjoy more than riffing on um, the victories and foibles of this particular group of people. Put on your earmuffs, strap on some long johns. It's time for Shkoyach. Welcome, everyone, and all listeners to the Shkoyach segment of our program. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> no problem. feel very welcomed right now. <laughs> uh, what do people need to know about this segment? Well, I think the two key things that people need to bear in mind when entering the Shkoyach segment is that it is both thorough and zany. It's all about that balance of zaniness and thoroughness. <laughs> uh, might just be a theme of the episode. I don't know. Yeah, I think unfortunately, again, this is going to be a very unzany segment. Yeah, I mean, for true trafe heads, those who've listened for many years, um, it's very clear that Shkoyach is a place that holds a lot of zaniness normally. So if even if we're thorough today, David, there's a long memory of, of zaniness that persists through the segment. Yeah, rest in power. <laughs> so Sam. Yes, David. Uh, what is your Shkoyach for this episode? I have a two-parter. One is more on the emotional register and one is more on the kind of like weirdo Sam register. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's start off on the emotional register. All right. Um, I want to give a shkoyach to the people in my life, like my partner Miata, but a bunch of other people. You're definitely in the list. The person you live with is on the list. There's a long, long list, David, of people who've kind of like helped me figure out that emotional register. Mm. I think I spent a good chunk of time in my life um, thinking I knew about emotions because I was thinking about them, uh, but not really like feeling and understanding them. And so I want to give a big shkoyach to everyone who's kind of helped me start to even understand that the register exists. <laughs> well, that's a really nice shkoyach. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to share about what that journey has been like? Imagine there are many, many people probably listening who are probably on similar journeys themselves. I mean, the one thing that comes to mind is that, that yesterday I was walking with our mutual acquaintance. Uh, she's been a friend for a really long time and 
I was just kind of saying how one thing that I just need to always remember and kind of want to keep remembering until I am not alive anymore is just the humility piece of things. Like being humble that at 25, I thought I knew what was going on and I had no idea what was going on. And so right now I probably think I know what's going on and I probably don't know what's going on. Um, whereas I am able to dot all my I's and cross my T's on in the intellectual realm, but I'm like a rookie on the more in the emotional realm side of things, right? Or, or like didn't even know what that would mean. Right. Like not assuming that you know about like what you're feeling or how you're operating. Exactly. It's be, yeah, being humble to the fact that I've spent 30 plus years living and not being super tapped into the emotional side of it feels very humbling, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're there now. Me too. And I kind of want to tie it up by saying shkoyach to everyone in my life, yourself included, who have, have really helped. That's a very nice, sincere, heartfelt shkoyach. So if that's that's the emotional register, uh, what is the other register? I mean, it's weird because this one hits on the emotional register too a little bit. It's uh, it's about seltzer, David. <laughs> <laughs> Something dear and close to your heart. Exactly, exactly. There is a horrible corporation in Canada that has made the first kind of innovative seltzer that I'm a big fan of. And so I both am frustrated that they are making it and also happy that it is a, a consumer choice that I am able to make occasionally. What's the name of the company? Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we can't promote them on here. Um, <laughs> in the clearest way that I can describe it to you without co-signing a major corporation, I would say that there's now carbonated water that is soda flavored and, and I'm very fond of it and it is accessible to me and I am very happy about that fact. Okay, let's back up for a second. You are giving your shkoyach to a company that uh, that we are not going to mention. It's a secret company. Because they're demons. <laughs> it's very fair. And and the product that they're making is not soda. It's seltzer that's flavor is soda flavor? 100%, David. It sounds weird, but it is fantastic. And so what are the, like, what's so great about it? Just imagine like a, a Coca-Cola flavored seltzer or maybe a Sprite flavored seltzer. It's, it's really tasty, especially when it's cold. So again, it's a massive corporation, so they don't really get a shkoyach, but I'm giving a shkoyach to feeling good about having good seltzer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, although it seems like this product might be controversial among uh, seltzer purists. Um, that is for an entirely different podcast, David. So to keep the ball rolling, um, what is your shkoyach? Um, so to, to keep this theme of multiple registers, my uh, shkoyach is on the register of uh, political struggle. Shut the front door, David. Wait, you're saying you're saying that you're going to talk about something that's happening on a on a on a political register right now? Who would have thought on this podcast? Uh, people who are listening, if you're shocked, you can send us an email, uh, trafepodcast at gmail.com. This is a first, I know. I know it's breaking new ground for this show. Uh, but my square is to everyone on the front lines of indigenous resistance that's taking place right now. Uh, you know, resistance to the ongoing violence of colonialism and genocide. Uh, specifically where we live in so-called Canada. You know, there are all these expanding front lines going on around this right now. And I just wanted to give a shkoyach to everyone doing the difficult work of keeping this resistance going right now. All right. Well, I mean, obviously, Trafe Podcast has very few clear party lines, but one of them is pretty strong support for uh, Indigenous resistance across uh, the areas that we're living in. But what is it about what's going on right now that makes you want to give um, Indigenous resistance your shkoyach right now? 
So for, for some brief context, you know, for new listeners, uh, in January, there was this enormous shutdown Canada mobilization, uh, first in support of the Wet'suwet'en struggle against the invasion of their territory uh, by the RCMP and, and Coastal Gaslink. Uh, but then it started to expand beyond that. You know, police were attacking indigenous communities who were acting in solidarity, which, which then led to even more actions in response. Uh, but then the pandemic hit. And so, you know, mass gatherings weren't as possible and some attention sort of shifted away from the colonial violence, which has only been continuing, if not escalating since then. Uh, and resistance has continued, too. And so on, on the day that we're recording this, it's the end of a week of action that was called by multiple indigenous communities uh, who are on the front lines in active struggle uh, and put out uh, a united call for support. Mm. You know, so this this came from folks at the Ginnemten checkpoint on Wet'suwet'en territory, the Tiny House Warriors on Sequipan territory, the 1492 Lineback Lane Camp on Six Nations territory. You know, Micmac folks out east fighting for their fishing rights. People from Gitigan Zibi, you know, fighting for a moose hunting moratorium. You know, you know, really coming from struggles all over so-called Canada. All right, great. So this is your Shkoyach of the month. Um, are there particular things that you think people who are listening to the show should be doing, should be reading, should be uh, engaging with? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the week of action will be over by the time this comes out. Uh, but all of these struggles continue to need support, you know, whether it's financial support, the ongoing calls for solidarity actions, or, or just helping bring attention back to what's going on. Uh, and we'll, we'll have links in the show notes with more information about how you can tap in. Yeah, and like we see on the show fairly frequently, figure out what's going on, where you're living, and try to get involved in that. Um, but again, I think we have found ourselves out of balance uh, and not very zany. <laughs> well, stay tuned. Hopefully in future episodes, we are going to bring some more zaniness to this segment. That's a good intention for the, for the future. So that's our episode for today. Thanks, as always, for listening to the show. Yeah, and, and I wanted to thank Molly and David for talking to us. And in fact, everyone in the Boon series who has taken time to help David and I better understand and be able to convey some of the histories of the Boon. Yeah, it was, it was very educational. And hopefully this is something that's helpful to other people, too. God willing. <laughs> Um, if you like the show, uh, tell your friends about it. We don't really advertise the show. I don't think uh, social media companies even allow us to advertise it anymore. No, they do not. <laughs> so uh, it's really the only way we can spread the word. So, you know, post about it on Twitter.com or tell somebody on Friendster. Wow, David, you dated yourself like 32 years there. Did you ever use Friendster? What is Friendster? Yeah, I had a friend on Friendster. All right, we'll talk about this off air. But yeah, tell your friends, give us a positive rating on iTunes. Five stars, five stars, five stars. I think it's called something else now, but and that was two or three years ago. So we are just, I am just dating myself as well. I apologize. I haven't been paying attention to the pulse and the current all the time, you know? <laughs> but anyways, uh, tell your friends and uh, disagree with us if you want by email, trafepodcast at gmail.com. Oh yeah, we love hate mail. I don't think I necessarily want hate mail. That's never fun. But meaningful critique is something that I think we're both super open to. So send that over. If you've been holding back and worried, uh, please send it over. Love to chat about it. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we traditionally record our podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks as always to Sack Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode, as well as everybody who helps make Trafe Podcast happen. 
you can follow us on all the social medias at Trafe Podcast. That would be T-R-E-Y-F, which means Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And David and I will talk about Friendster after this recording, and maybe (laughs) we will get a Friendster as well. Yeah, and you can send us comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon.